Amen. Amy and I married in 1984, and uh, we were kind of had just life to ourselves uh, for the first two and a half years, and then Hillary was born about two and a half years later. And um, if you know my family, then uh, Byron wasn't far behind, and then Hayden, and then Hannah. And so we spent a number of years raising babies, and then we were in the school phase of our life. Uh, lots of activities. Uh, eventually we got to college, and... Um, you kind of think uh, after college, you've kind of raised your kids, but as kind of the trend these days, uh, each one of the kids moved home at some point. And so, uh, you know, I was thinking about this. If you just talked about the years that we raised our family, uh, I think it was about 28 years of having kids around, but kind of eventually you get to the phase where we're going to be in the empty nester phase. Now, we knew this was coming on, and I started noticing that um, Amy was getting books about being an empty nester. And the other thing I started noticing, she started, she was real emotional, she started crying. And, and I realized that, um, you know, I, I didn't know if she was crying because the kids were leaving, or she was crying because she was going to be left with me. Um... And so, you know, I realized when we got to that empty nester stage that uh, I needed to up my game, you know, because here, here's the deal. You don't really know after 28 years what your relationship is, after all of that activity and all that raising kids and all that focus on those kids. You don't really know what your relationship is until all of that is stripped away. You see, being an empty nester means that you're stripping away a lot of your activity and what has consumed you as a couple, and it's only when that's stripped away that you get to the place where you, uh, it becomes evident what relationship you really have. Um, thinking about this, and this is really also true in the spiritual realm. You don't really know what your relationship is with Christ until a lot of the activity is stripped away. And I think that's really true in the crisis in which we're going through that a lot of our uh, quote-unquote religious activity has been taken away from us and it's only when it's taken away do you come to the point where you can really truly evaluate what your relationship is with Christ? This is what I want you to understand today. That crisis, like we're in, exposes our relationship with Christ. It reveals the quality of our faith. Now, if we turn our attention to the New Testament and we begin to think about the religious environment of first century 
Palestine. Palestine. Uh, that Jesus came into. What I realize is that it was not a time of crisis that exposed their religious faith, but it was Jesus and the life that he lived that exposed uh, the religious life of the religious people of his day. The religious people of his day were uh, the people like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They were the ones that kind of set the normal faith of the day, and people looked at them and said, okay, they're the religious, they got it going on, this is what it's supposed to look like. But then all of a sudden, at least for three years, Jesus of Nazareth comes, and he exposes their religious faith. And what we discover when we read uh, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that there was a qualitative difference between Jesus and the religious leaders and the way that they lived out their faith. Now, there's a statement at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, the Sermon on the Mount is contained for us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And um, you, you can go back and review that. But obviously it's, it's, well, it's the lengthiest section of Jesus' teaching that's recorded in any of the New Testament books. And I don't really have time to talk about the content of it. But at the end, there are two verses. And I believe these two verses uh, express the qualitative difference between uh, the religious life that Jesus lived out and the religious life of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes. It says in Matthew chapter 7, end of the Sermon on the Mount, conclusion. This is the observation that was made. It says, and so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. And here it is. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. There was a qualitative difference in the faith of Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Um, if you look at that verse, um, there's kind of a, a statement of transition that and says, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings. And then it says that the people were astonished at his teaching. One of the observations I would make about that is that the word that is translated their people is a word that is translated many other times in the New Testament as crowds, or sometimes we hear this, this statement of the multitudes. And it, it lets us in on a little bit of insight, because the Sermon on the Mount was not just for his immediate uh, band of uh, followers, his disciples, but there were many other people 
that were there on that hillside that overlooks the Sea of Galilee uh, when he taught that day. And what you realize in the Gospels is that there were many people that followed Jesus. And it, it denotes that they were attracted to Jesus. Now, the other observation we need to make at this point is there is no indication in the Gospel accounts, get this, that crowds of people were attracted to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. You don't get this any sense that, you know, Rabbi so-and-so came and he began to teach that day and there were these throngs of people that came to him. In fact, actually, you get just the opposite impression that they did not attract people. And we're going to get down to the bottom of that. But I would say at this point that you have to realize that it is this simple aspect that eventually turns the religious leaders against Jesus. And ultimately, this becomes the reason that they put him to death is because the people were attracted to him. It was his popularity that led to his death. It says that these, these multitudes of people were astonished. Uh, sometimes that word is translated amazed. It literally means to be beside themselves. The sense is that what Jesus was doing was outside the box. That... Um, uh, the way he taught was something they were not used to. And uh, it was kind of like, wow, this is different. This is new. And they were obviously drawn to that. And at this point, what we need to understand is that there was a connection to Jesus. They were drawn to him. And it says that the people were astonished at his teaching. And I think when it talks about the teaching, it, ta it, it encompasses the, the content of that teaching. And so we could go and you can read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we could go back and we could spend a lot of time talking about how Jesus would have been different from, in his teaching, in his content from the religious leaders, and you can see that. But I think there was also, there was this qualitative or, or character difference. It was not just what he taught but it was the character, the spirit behind what he taught. And when, when Matthew is relating this, what he says in verse 29 is that the reason that the throngs of people were astonished at his teaching was because, and this is the phrase he uses, he taught them as one having authority. Now sometimes that word authority is translated power. But if, if I can get you to think about what are the scriptures communicating to say that the people were drawn to him because he taught as one having authority. It is the sense there was a power. I think maybe it's the word today that would be clout. When Jesus taught Yes, there was authority, there was power, but there was this clout. There was an authenticity. There was a realness. I would contend that when he spoke, 
the sense was he got this firsthand. I want you to think about that. I think the sense was this was not something he had gotten secondhand, something that was passed down to him, something he had heard. No, this was firsthand. It was as if he had firsthand knowledge. I think somehow he captured the spirit of the law in a way that others did not. I think the sense was, and I'm going to get to this because this is, I believe, the point for today, is that his words, his teaching reflected a connection with God that the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes did not have. There was a first-hand connection with God that was reflected in his teaching. Now, the indictment of verse 29, it's not just that the people were drawn out of their astonishment at his teaching because he was one that had authority, but the, the other jab here is that that last phrase, and not as the scribes. The scribes were those that were set aside to teach. And the indictment here is that Jesus had an authority that the scribes did not. If I had to put it in terms of what I just put in, in terms of Jesus, if Jesus had a connection, then I would say when the people heard the scribes teach, there was a disconnection. There was a disconnect. If Jesus was expressing firsthand knowledge, it seemed as if the scribes were expressing a second hand, third hand, fourth, fifth all the way down the road. It was as if these were things that were handed down to them that they had heard that they were relating, but they did not really have firsthand knowledge of. They were just reporting. They were teaching what they had been taught. You see, when you distill it down, Jesus had an authenticity, a realness, a firsthand experience that was reflected in his teaching and the scribes did not. There was a disconnect. When they talked about God, it was about rules, rituals, and religious practices. That's what their faith distilled down to. And there was, the people intuitively knew that there was a disconnect between them and God. They sensed that there was a connection between Jesus and God, but when they heard the scribes, there was a disconnect that all they could do was distill the faith, the faith down to the, to the almighty God. They could only distill it down to rules, rituals, and religious practices so that when they, when they related to the people, there was a pride, there was a legalism, and there was a judgmentalism. In fact, the reason the people were not drawn to them 
was because of that I really believe there was a pride a legalism and a judgmentalism and you see this conflict play out in the Gospels and really you come to the last week of Jesus ministry and Jesus just blasts them it becomes the final straw it's like no he's done we're gonna get rid of him you could read this later in Matthew's Gospel but he calls them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones what he said you look good on the outside but there's just death on the inside. People were not drawn to them because there was no life in them. It was an outward show. It was about ritual that, quite honestly, most people couldn't live up to. And so they were repulsed by this. Jesus called them blind guides, that if you follow them, you're going to end up in the same bar ditch they're going to fall into. And then he called them time and time again hypocrites. So when Jesus taught, the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And it eventually, this qualitative difference between them becomes the reason that the establishment of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, and elders comes in conflict with this itinerant rabbi from Nazareth who exposed their religion and the disconnect that they had with God and eventually leads to the death of Jesus because of his popularity among the people. If I had to summarize it all, I would put it in these terms. And these are terms that we've been using since the first of the year in our vision 2020. When you, when you condense down the gospel, here it is. Jesus had a relational faith and the Pharisees had a non-relational faith. When I say that Jesus had a relational faith, what I mean is you, you could tell that he had a connection with the Almighty God. Now, obviously, he is God. The people didn't know that. But it's like this guy, this guy knows God. When he talks, Jesus didn't say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus just said. When the rabbis, when the Pharisees taught, the scribes, they said, Rabbi, so-and-so said this. So-and-so said this. Thus saith the Lord from prophet so-and-so. But Jesus just said, so-and-so. He just taught one that's had authority because there was this connection between him and God. But get this, to say that Jesus had a relational faith means that it wasn't just his connection with God, but that begins to transfer to the people around him. And there is this, this, this attraction for people who are hungry to truly know God, that they got the sense this guy knows God, and there's life in that. And the contrast to that is the Pharisees and what I would describe as a non-relational faith. And what that means is there was a disconnect between them and God, the very God that they wanted to connect people to, 
intuitively the people know, I, I don't think you... I don't sense that you have a connection with God, therefore I'm not coming to you to listen to you. They were not drawn to them. And so a non-relational faith means that they were disconnected really with God. They were just expressing rules, rituals, and religious practices. But then, it, get this, it translates to their relationship with mankind who's searching for someone to connect them with God. And the sense is, I, I just don't get it. I'm not connected with you. There was not just a disconnect between them and God, but a disconnect between them and mankind. Jesus exposed their faith for what it really was, the people didn't know. The disconnect until Jesus came and spoke with authority of a connection with God. What does all this mean to us today? I believe that the crisis of the coronavirus pandemic 2020 is a crisis that will expose our faith for what it is. I believe that this crisis strips away our religious practice, the things that we do, our activities, and it strips it down to just us and God. And I think sometimes those activities are things that we've propped our lives up with. And when we're involved in these religious activities, somehow we, we, we get this sense that I'm practicing my faith. But when those things are stripped away, the question is, what do we have? Do we have a relational faith like Jesus? Or when it's all stripped away, do we realize we have a non relational faith like the Pharisees. Now, here's the great thing. I believe God has a purpose for the time that we pass through, and he has given us the opportunity with everything stripped away to look at our lives and say, what do I got? And the great opportunity is then we can make assessment of our life. We can look at the, the quality of our faith. We can see it for what it is. Maybe we didn't even realize how we were living it out until everything was stripped away. And it gives us an opportunity to live out and to see a relational faith. A relational faith starts with being born again. In John 3, Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, comes to Jesus. Kind of the question is, what does it mean for me to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus just got straight to the point. He said, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. A relational faith is one that starts with a new birth where Jesus comes to take control of our life and establish a relationship with us. And then, once that relational connection has happened, not just me going, okay, what do I need to do to be religious? And what are the things I need to do to, to, to live for God? 
but truly the Spirit giving birth to us, then that relationship must be lived out uh, as a relationship, not as a practice of religion. And you see, when the Spirit of God dwells inside of us, then we come to the Scripture, and in the Scripture we find life. We don't find rules, rituals, the religious practices that we're going to try to do somehow to make ourselves as good people of faith. But the Spirit of God teaches us from the Scripture and we're drawn to Christ in the relationship because it's not just words in a book. It's a person that we know that has written this. And when we come to prayer, prayer is not the recitation of prayer requests that we just need God to do. No, it's a discussion with someone that we are personally related to in a relationship. Talking to the almighty God of the universe who sent his son to die for us, that we might be in a relationship with him, not just to go to heaven with him someday, but to live in a relationship with him in this world. Our directional statement for the year was that we exist to connect the disconnected to Christ, his church, and his cause. I believe one of the purposes of the crisis that we pass through is that we would come to the place where God would qualitatively change our connection with him when all the activity is stripped away and we find out what we've really got Man, it becomes a great opportunity for us to go, okay, I need to work on this because I don't have a lot of other things that are going on because ultimately it is about our connection. In fact, I would say that ultimately the only way you, you thrive through this, not just survive, but thrive through the, through the crisis that we're passing through is that you have a relational faith with Christ. But the other critical component here that I believe Christ wants to teach us that as we have a relational connection with him, then that would be expressed to a world that is disconnected. A circle of people that are around us as we've described that need a connection with Christ and intuitively they know the difference between a relational faith and a non-relational faith. May God drive us to the place to have a relational connection with Him that then we might have a relational connection with the people around us that they would be drawn to the Christ that they sense that there is someone who has life. And so that's my prayer today in the midst of this, that we would see the opportunity that God has set before us. If you would join me in prayer. Father, today, uh, Father, when everything is stripped away, Father, may we see our lives, our faith, our connection to you as it really is. And Father, may you drive us to the place that, Father, we would have that relational connection 
that it would not be a faith that we live out of our own strength, but it would be your spirit within us that lives out that connection. And Father, may you so transform us in this time that when we come out of this, that we are qualitatively different people who you have passed through the fire that we might be sent out to connect the disconnected to Christ, his church, and his cause. And may it be for your glory and for your honor. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.